So we sang as we started our service these words, Behold Our God, one of my favorite songs and always a reminder to us that that's what we're doing when we come to church. That's what we're doing when we sing these songs, when we pray, uh, when we listen to preaching and preach. We are beholding our God. And so our prayer this morning is that we as a church would, those who are members here, those who have covenanted with, officially covenanted with this church, those who've been attending maybe for a long time, and those who are just visiting maybe for the first time, the hope is that together we will see God in his glorious grandeur, that we will see him in his splendor, and we will adore him for who he reveals himself to be in the Bible. So today, we continue our series on Genesis, no surprise, and we pick up at the beginning of chapter 12. So if you'll go ahead and turn there, Genesis chapter 12, that is where we find ourselves today. Last week, we were introduced to this man named Abram, or Abraham. Abraham is the name given to him by God later in the book. So chapter 17, verse 5, his name is changed to Abraham, father of a multitude from Abram. And in Genesis chapter 3, I mentioned this last week, but in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that a future seed or offspring, maybe you've been coming for a number of weeks and you keep hearing seed, seed, and you're like, what in the world is that talking about? You're thinking of a little seed, you know, being planted in your garden or something. Uh, by seed, I simply mean offspring. That the offspring or the seed, God promised that a future seed or offspring of Eve would defeat Satan. And undo the fall. That there would be a devil crusher. There would be someone who would undo what happened in the Garden of Eden. A children's Bible say the sad day. That kind of thing. Well, there's going to be a reversal of that. And that's going to happen through the seed. God promised that. And we have seen God preserve this line of the seed. Right? From Adam through Seth down to Noah through Shem and now down to this man that we were introduced to, whom we were introduced to last week, Abram. Last week, I pointed out that when we come to the end of the Tower of Babel story in chapter 11, we know that something specific and something major must happen if there is to be any hope for humanity. Last week, we discussed how the scene, uh, when you get to Genesis 11 verse 9, the scene is very much that man is on a downward spiral. Humanity has fallen. Uh, God wiped out humanity with the flood, only saved eight people. And you're thinking, okay, we're starting over with eight righteous people. And then very shortly after that, we have Noah passing out drunk. And then we have Ham, his, uh, his son, dishonoring him. And then we get Nimrod, this great mighty man, reminding us of a pre-flood society. And then we have the Tower of Babel, where humanity collectively gathers to defy God, to rebel against him. So when you come to Genesis 11, verse 9, as I said last week, the, the picture is hopeless. It's not looking good for people. God must do something big. And that is exactly what happens with this figure, Abram, in Genesis 12 and the following chapters of Genesis. Abram comes from a pagan background. That's one of the most amazing things about it. It's not as though Abram just comes from this, this perfect, idyllic family living out there in, in, in this God-worshipping bubble in the midst of the pagan society of Mesopotamia, and they're just God worshipers in the midst of a pagan society. No, Abram comes from a family of people who serve other gods. We got that last week from Joshua chapter 24. So Abram comes from a pagan background and his wife is barren. So we're talking about the line of the seed we're talking about a, a continuation of this, and, and God is, is taking this from a person who is steeped in paganism and whose wife cannot have children. Behold our God. This is how he works. 
This is how he magnifies his glory, is in human weakness. And in spite of this paganism and this barrenness, he will be the one, Abram will be the one to continue the line of the seed. God's unstoppable plan will prevail. And that's what we looked at last week. That was the focus of last week, the God who prevails. But today, we come to one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. And not just, you know, one of the most important passages in Genesis, yes, but one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. There are many passages you could say that about. But this must certainly be on that list. Genesis 12, 1 to 9, God's call of Abram. If you look in your ESV Bible, the heading for this is simply that, the call of Abram. But I have entitled the sermon for today, as you'll see in the bulletin, The Faithful God and the Father of Faith. Why have I entitled Genesis 12, 1 to 9, The Faithful God and the Father of Faith? faith. Well, I think this passage is meant to impress upon our minds two things. There's, a, there's, a, there's two uh, things that we ought to focus on in these verses. God's word and Abram's response. The spotlight is on both God and Abram. We're meant to see something in these nine verses about God, a number of things about God and about Abram. Both of these are being tied together, interwoven in these verses. And also, out of that, as we see God and we see Abram, we're meant to see the relationship between the two. And this relationship between God and Abram will be spoken about in terms of covenant in chapter 15. And we'll get there. We're not going to go and impose all of that here now today. We'll let the text unfold for us naturally. But this relationship will be uh, spoken about in terms of covenant when we get to chapter 15. Okay, so why do I refer to Abram as the father of faith? What is that about? The faithful God and the father of faith. Well, let me read a few passages from the New Testament to you briefly. Galatians 3, 9. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3.29 refers to believers as Abraham's offspring. We are Abraham's offspring insofar as we are believers. The man of faith. Those who are of faith are offspring of Abraham. And then Romans 4.11 says it very explicitly, calls Abraham the father of all who believe. One commentator named Alan Ross, says that Abraham has become the epitome of faith in the Bible. So you look through the pages of Scripture, all of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation, and it is Abram, or Abraham, whom the Bible holds up as the the prototypical believer, the quintessential man of faith. He epitomizes faith in God. Many believers in the Bible, but Abram has this unique role. So as we come to the beginning of this relationship between the faithful God on the one hand and the father of faith on the other, there are five things that I want you to see. Five things that I want you to see. And as I was reminded before the sermon today, no, they do not all start with the same letter. Uh, But here you go. These are five things that unfold right up out of the text. And, and these, are, these are little points along our journey through these nine verses that we have to see. These are five uh, big ideas that are packed into. And here's one of the things I'll say to you is these ideas are, will be constantly revisited and reiterated as Genesis unfolds. Each of them will. So we'll see them repeated. In the life of Isaac, in the life of Jacob, and and then in the life of Israel. And so, really, in many ways, these are the things that Moses, as he's writing this for the children of Israel in the wilderness, about to go into the promised land, he's putting these things before them, saying, look, this is the life that you are to live. This is the God whom you are to worship. So, five things. Command. The first is command, second, promise, third, obedience, fourth, appearance, and then finally, worship. 
worship. So if you will, out of reverence for God's word, stand with me, and we're going to read these nine verses. Grateful the kids are with us this morning. I pray that God will speak to each of you. I know that some of you are drawing random things on your paper. That's okay. But I pray that God will speak to even the smallest among us this morning who has ears to hear. That God will give all of us ears to hear, even our little people. All right, let's read. God's word. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. We've already been introduced to the Canaanites. Remember that from the descendants of Ham, those who are cursed. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is God's word. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Ask that God would not allow this to just be a fruitless time for any of us. Some of us this morning are struggling, maybe to stay awake, uh, maybe to, uh, to keep your mind off of your issues, things going on, maybe. Maybe you had some things go on this morning before church, and maybe there's something big going on this afternoon that you have to face, and you're just, your mind's busy. Let's pray that God would still our minds, and that He would speak to us and change us. Father, We worship you as our heavenly Father. You are our great God. And you are our heavenly Father. You are Abba. You are our Daddy. What a wonderfully intimate picture that we call you Daddy because you love us this much. Father, we pray that you would love us this much morning by using your holy word to change us. Father, we recognize that there are many in our culture who have no regard for your word and who believe or think that it is filled with contradictions and that it is unreliable. But Father, we have seen your glory in your word and there are many who have devoted their education and their writing and their time to showing that whether it is historically or textually or archaeologically or scientifically that your word stands up to scrutiny. And Father, we desire not to be a church that runs from the truth and foundation of your word as we see even today many unhitching themselves from your holy word. Father, we praise you that your word is our foundation, that we know that you love us, that Jesus loves us because the Bible tells us so. And Father, we praise you that you give us in your word a clear revelation of yourself 
And you say, thus says the Lord. And so, Father, we come this morning humbly, as we must, on our faces, as pitiful people, God. Puny people, people who in and of ourselves have nothing. We are sinful. We have unclean hands. We have unclean hearts. Our minds, our wills, our affections often turned away towards created things. And Father, we need your word. So God, would you use it today as you promise that you will. And we pray that you would minister to each of us where we are, that you would not leave us alone. Even those this morning struggling to stay awake or struggling to pay attention, God, that you would mercifully hold them fast. Hold all of us fast, God. Protect us from the evil one. Protect our service from the evil one. And may this word not return void, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to our first thing to consider this morning, and that is command. Command. This passage begins with a clear directive or command from God. Look at verse 1. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. While we do not know all the circumstances surrounding this command from God to Abram, we have maybe some questions about what preceded this command, what exactly is going on in the background to Abram's life when God makes this command. How does he do it? We don't know those circumstances, but what we do know is that it happened while Abram was still in Ur. So in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 to 3, we have Stephen, who's about to be stoned. He's bearing witness to the glory of God. He's bearing witness to the glory of Christ, God's Son, and to the truth of Christ as Messiah. He's bearing witness, and he's recounting for the people the history of Israel. That wonderful moment in Stephen's life as he bears witness to the truth before they kill him. And he said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So Stephen quotes this verse He quotes this verse and he says this happened before Abram was in Haran. So Abram is in Mesopotamia. Abram is presumably still in Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, he's he's there in that major city. And what we realize about this command is that it would not have been an easy one to embrace, to leave and to trust. Now, in our day and time, this does not compute as well. Because people will will grow up and go to high school and graduate from high school and go off to college halfway across the world, maybe, study abroad. Maybe they'll go to college two or three hours away from mom and dad and they'll study abroad and then they'll take a job on the West Coast and they see mom and dad every once in a while and they start a life and they have support network there, job, so forth. Very different, very different from this day and time. This would have been an incredibly difficult command for Abram to heed, to embrace, to leave, and to trust. It's basically what God is saying to Abram. He is basically told to leave his life and world behind. Everything, essentially, from your country and your kindred and your father's house. God is putting a comprehensive demand on Abram. Do you see that? The language is meant to just convey this kind of comprehensive picture. Leave it all. Leave and go where I will show you. And to leave all of this is not to go to a particular place. You might say, well, okay, so God tells him to leave uh, this particular strip of land and he's going to go over there to that city. He's going to leave one major 
point of civilization, one major city, and he's going to go to another major hub of civilization, another major city with all of its comforts and so forth. No, that's not the case at all. This command is not to go to any particular place, but to an unknown place. (laughs) Go. Just go. And I'll show you. To the land that I will show you. Hebrews 11.8 says, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. We'll get to that more in a moment. But can you imagine that? Just go. Just set out on a course and I'll show you where I want you to end up. Leave it all. 75 years old. Go. So this is the command that God puts on Abram. The father of faith. And we'll get to Abram's response in a moment when we get down to obedience. But first we need to see what else God says to him. This is very important. So we have a command. It is comprehensive in nature. And it is one that requires absolute trust because he's stepping out. He's stepping out into something that he has no idea about. It's unknown entirely. But what else does God have to say? If this and that goes to our, that leads to our second point that I want you to see, and that's promise. If this passage, this initial interaction between God and Abram begins with command, I want you to see this. If it begins with command, I think we can say that it is dominated by promise. Yes, God makes a command. He gives a command to Abram. Go. That's where it starts. That's where God's speech starts. But this passage is dominated by promise. Gordon Wenham, a commentator that, uh, of Genesis, a very good commentator of Genesis, notes that the numerous promises in this passage heavily outweigh the command. This is very important. Do you see that? God gives a command, and then we have a mass of promises that God puts there on Abram, outweighing the command. And this tells us something about the Lord and his dealings with us. Remember, as the Bible unfolds for us, and it's wonderful to go back and go through Genesis, because you're literally seeing how the God of the Bible unfolds for us. We get to see from the very beginnings of Scripture what this God is like. We get to work up again from the foundation. And we learn something very important here about the Lord. Yes, he gives commands. Of course, God gives commands, but these are always enveloped. Hear this. People of God, hear this. His commands are always enveloped by his promises. Let me say it this way. The God who makes demands on our lives is the God who saves our lives. The God who makes demands on our lives is the God who saves our lives. We see this all throughout Scripture. It's interesting that when you come to the Ten Commandments, they don't just appear as bare commands. You don't just get God saying, do this, do this, do this. What's the verse that precedes? I love this. The verse that precedes the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Before God gives all these commands, these Ten Commands to the people that they will not be able to keep, As Paul tells us, the law was meant to hold us under sin, to show us that we cannot keep God's law, and to turn us to a Savior. What is is it that God says before he gives these commands? Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. These are words of salvation. These are words of faithfulness. These are words of promise. And they precede these commands. They tell the people, look, the God who makes demands on you is the God who saves you. Not just just commands, but commands from a Savior. We see this from Jesus. In the farewell discourse in uh, the Gospel of John, which we worked through as a church a few years ago, we saw in chapter 14, beginning, Jesus is telling his disciples, you must obey my commandments. I give you commandments, you must obey my commandments. He says, you love one another. But what does Jesus say right before he says all this about about loving him and keeping his commandments? He says this, I go to prepare a place for you and we'll come back 
and take you to myself. So it's the, same, it's the same model. We have God saying, look, this is who I am. This is what I've done for you. Obey me. And then we have Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, God incarnate, saying, I am going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to take you to be with me in heaven forever. Now go and obey me. And this is what we see here as well. Let me put it this way. Responding to God as Lord and Master always involves responding to him as provider and savior. So let me ask you this question. Maybe you see God as simply a rule maker and a rule enforcer. Maybe that's just the way you understand God. And so maybe you have this view of God much like Martin Luther had when he, as he was coming to faith in Christ, his view of God was simply that God makes these demands on us and he stands over us ready to enforce when we don't keep them. And in in fact, that's true. God does make demands on us and he does punish sin. He does discipline his children, not punish us. Christ was punished on our behalf. But he disciplines us. This is the case. But for the people of God, we always remember that we follow God as Lord as we follow him and trust him as our Savior. We never see him commanding us apart from promising us, apart from saving us, apart from being faithful to us. So what does God promise Abram here? Let's look. Look at verses 2 to 3. Chapter 12, verse 2 to 3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We've already seen the promise of land implied in verse 1. God tells... um, Abram, that he's going to show him a land. So we've already seen that implied there. Verse 1, the promise of land. But here in verses 2 to 3, we get seven explicit promises from God. They're just heaped up. Do you see that? God is just heaping up promises on this man, Abram. One commentator, Kenneth Matthews, says it this way. The divine oath is like an avalanche of blessing cascading in wave after wave on the patriarch and his children to come. That's the image we have of God's blessing here on Abram. These promises reach back to creation. Notice that the the word that is repeated throughout this is bless, bless, blessing, bless, bless. That brings us all the way back to creation. When God formed Adam and Eve and he said to them, It says he blessed them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He gave them dominion. He blessed them with a perfectly blessed or happy in the true sense kind of life. So we see here these promises reaching back to creation and they reach out to restoration. God will bring blessing to the whole earth through these promises and through this relationship that he makes with Abram. These are promises made to him and through him. God says to Abram, this is what I'm going to do for you. And then he makes promises through Abram. He says, not only is this what I'm going to do for you, to you, but you're also going to be a conduit. There is a larger recipient here than just Abram. He is a conduit for worldwide blessing. So let's look at some of these, let's look at some of these promises. What are they? Let's look at all of them, at least briefly. What are these promises that God makes to Abram? And there will be much more unpacking of this as we go through Genesis. But here, what do we find? First, a great nation. So it's interesting when you come to the beginning of the book of Exodus, right? So you have Genesis first and then Exodus. And when you come to the beginning of the book of Exodus, this is what you read. Chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. There's a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. I.e. a great nation. They've already, before you get to David, 
ruling from Jerusalem, and you get Solomon in all of his splendor and wisdom and riches and all the people's coming to him for wisdom and admiring his blessedness. Before that, even here, this ragtag bunch of people that are able to be enslaved, they are mighty and great and fearful to one of the greatest powers in the ancient world, the Egyptians. So God says he will make him a great nation. Blessings, God will bless him, that God would be with him and would prosper. So in Genesis chapter 24, verses 34 to 35, remember that Abram gets his servant to go back to Haran. He wants him to go back and get Isaac, his son, a wife from his people, not from the wicked Canaanites, but wants to send his servant back to get a wife for his son Isaac. And Isaac gets, uh, the servant gets there and he finds the woman. That's a story we'll get to. And he says this to them, I am Abram's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. So blessings is very concrete here. When God says, I'm going to bless you, it's very concrete. It means that God is going to make him flourish and make him to prosper. We understand that too and spiritually that Abram will be blessed in his relationship. Ultimately, he's blessed because he has faith. He's blessed in his relationship with God. God promises him a great name. Unlike at the Tower of Babel, where man tries to exalt his own name, towering up to be called great, here God will do the work. Man trying to make his own name great, here God says, I'm going to make your name great. A great name. He will be a blessing. God will bless those who bless him. God will curse those who dishonor him. And finally, and this is, this is most important, beautiful. Finally, in or through him, all the families, peoples of the earth shall be blessed. Isn't it amazing? If you're a Christian this morning, you are sitting here in part because of the faithfulness of God to Abraham. That's an incredible thing. Our very presence here this morning, listening to preaching, singing psalms of praise is a fulfillment. Even now, we all may become, we all probably have pretty similar heritage. We all come from different places. If you trace us all back, we would come from different places in the world. We're here this morning worshiping the true God. The people in the churches whom we prayed for at the very beginning, whom Walt prayed for, are worshiping the true God this morning because of God's faithfulness to Abraham. That's incredible. Testimony to his faithfulness even here now. In and through him, all the families, peoples of the earth shall be blessed. Later in Genesis... God will be more specific with Abraham and in saying, in your offspring or in your seed, all will be blessed. And in the New Testament, this seed of Abraham is identified with Jesus Christ. Through Christ, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So listen to this. You say, well, we need to go to the New Testament to see the gospel maybe. Listen to what Paul says about this passage. Galatians 3.8. And the scripture, what we're looking at today, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's us, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Do you hear, do you hear, do you hear what we're reading? We're reading the gospel in Genesis chapter 12. We're not in Romans. We're not in John. This is not John 3.16. This is Genesis 12, 3. And it says here that the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and then he quotes this verse, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That is the gospel that Christ, the seed of Abram has come. And through him, all the peoples of the earth are blessed. So the seed of Eve has now become the seed of of Abraham, through whom God will accomplish worldwide salvation. So God gives a difficult command to be obeyed and a glorious set of promises to be believed. So what is Abram's response? And what must our response be? 
And that leads us to our third thing to observe this morning, and that is obedience. So we've seen command, verse one. We've seen promises heaped up, verses two to three. Command, promise, now we come to obedience. Look at verses four to six. Verses four to six. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, And Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The writer wants you to be reminded of the Canaanite. That's who. Abram is going into a sea of hostility, a sea of hostility of corruption, a sea of wickedness that God will ultimately destroy. The response to God's word that we find here with Abram is not something new. We need to see that. Yes, Abram is held up in the Bible. Abram as, as, a, as the, the model of faith. He's the father of faith. But what we're seeing here with Abram, we have to see this is important for understanding God's plan and understanding the trajectory and understanding the line that what we see here with Abraham is not new. We've seen this before with who? Noah. Noah. Chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 9, 2 and 2, male and female went into the ark with Noah as God has commanded Noah. And then what do we have here with Abram? Same language, Abram went as the Lord had told him. So we're meant to see, even in this, we're meant to see, look, God's plan is continuing. What we saw with Noah, we are seeing with Abraham. And remember what we said about the difficulty of the command. This act of obedience for Abram is not easy. It's not comfortable. It is not convenient. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at it. What is it that Abraham is actually asked to do? What is it that he does when he obeys? This is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. He obeys in the face of barrenness. His wife can't have children, and everything God is telling him is based on having children. There there is no, there's no, this, this entire promise hinges. No, no, let me say it this way. This entire bag of promises hinges on a descendant. And his wife has, they have no children and his wife can't have children. That is incredible. Not only does he go into the unknown, he goes into the unknown with hopelessness on a human level. In hope, he believed against hope, Paul says in Romans 4 of Abraham. He obeys in the face of barrenness. He obeys in the face of instability. What is he leaving He moves away from rootedness, rootedness in society, rootedness in his household, rootedness with regard to his inheritance. Abram's life is probably pretty good. It's very predictable. It's very comfortable. And there is an entire network of of people there. He moves from this to pitching his tent along an unknown road to an unknown place. This is not getting on a Delta flight with a bunch of money in your bank account, with a place lined up somewhere else, going there, maybe a few friends you know there. You get there, you start paying your rent, you move in, you get to know your neighbors. This is not what is going on with Abraham. He obeys in the face of much instability. He obeys in the face of insecurity. He moves from the protections of a support network in a familiar place to being an unprotected nomad among a foreign people and a people who had no regard for the true God. It's not as though he could get on Interstate 85 and if things give out and he gets attacked on the road, he could call 911. There is no 911. There is no help. 
There's no lifeline. He's just trekking out. There's wickedness in the world. Remember before the flood, violence filled the earth. Remember after the flood, that the thoughts and intentions of our hearts are evil. This is a world filled with sin and evil and wickedness and violence and hatred and cruelty, ruthlessness. And what happens? He goes out into all of this trusting in God, moving out into the insecurity, moving from security to insecurity. He obeys in the face of loss. He is not just leaving a condition. This is very important. Abraham is not just leaving a condition of stability and comfort. He's not just leaving a place to go to another unknown place. Abraham is leaving people. He's leaving human beings whom he knows, whom he trusts, and whom he loves. Yes, this is a human being. This is a man with feelings. A man with connections, a man with relationships, and he is being asked, commanded by God to leave it all, to leave that and go. He's leaving people he's known for 75 years. Though some are with him, he has his nephew Lot, he has his wife, Sarai, And he has some servants, a small entourage, and there's debate among commentators as to whether the people whom Abraham has acquired are servants or slaves, or whether these are people who have become worshipers of the true God. As Abraham has received a call from God, he goes to Haran, and as he's in Haran, he's proclaiming God and saying, this God has come to me, he's called called me to himself. And people begin to have faith, and they begin to come along with Abraham. Are these proselytes? Are these believers? who've come along with Abram, or are these people whom Abram owns as servants, slaves? It could be either. There's debate on that. But what we see here is that there is much loss. Despite the fact that he has these handful of people with him, he's left many people whom he undoubtedly cares for. Never to see again. Never to see again. So in the face of all these things, this man, Abram, uproots his life. And listen, this is key. He banks everything on the word of God. And that's what we do as Christians when we build our lives on the Bible. Yes, the Bible. When we build our lives on this sacred book, the Holy Scriptures. When we do that. We bank everything on the word of God. Calvin says that Abram does all of this on the basis of the bare word. Simply the word. God doesn't write a sign in the heavens for Abraham. He doesn't give him a vision of what's going to come. He doesn't give him in a dream a picture of all of these things. And, and, and he can see how he's going to get to this place. And everything's going to be okay in the end. He's going he's to have this house. And it's going to be going to be great. He's going to have these neighbors. And he's going to have this child. Because it's all going to work out with Sarai's barrenness. Don't worry about that. He doesn't get a picture, a vision of his future. He gets the bare word of God. That's it. That's it. Abram's life. In this respect is a challenge to at least three things. So this is what I want to focus on here for a moment. It is a challenge to at least three things. We have to see this. First, comfortable Christianity. Here we see, if Abraham is the prototypical believer, if he's the prototypical Christian, if you will, because he is Christian in the sense that his salvation is accomplished by the finished work of Christ in the future. He trusts God's seed, the promised Christ who will come in the future. So he is a Christian in that sense. If we are to see him as a prototypical Christian, then we see that there is absolutely no place for comfortable Christianity. The Christian life is not to be lived on a cushion, but under a cross. Do we get that? Do we get that, American Christians? I mean, I think, it, I think many of us, we struggle every day with just seeing Christianity is just going to just feel real nice. And, and the whole scope of the Christian life is basically a nice hot cup of coffee with my devotional and with a good day experiencing God's blessings. And that's Christianity. 
That's not the Bible. That's rubbish. That's fluff. That's not the, the, the kind of life God calls us to. He calls us to a life of carrying our cross, a life of dying to ourselves, a life of following Jesus to death if need be. If your Christianity is really comfortable, we need to check ourselves with this example. Abram teaches us that comfortable Christianity is not biblical. Secondly, he challenges us in this respect. He challenges us with selective obedience. Here's what we do. God tells us things in his word. He gives us commands. And we will just stop our ears. Not in overtly defiant, explicitly rebellious ways, but in subtle ways, we just push down those commands that require us to step out into loss and insecurity and utter trust, and we just embrace those commands that are comfortable and easy. We have selective obedience. Abraham reminds us there's no such thing as selective obedience, that obedience by its nature must be comprehensive. It is to die to self and take hold of Christ as a treasure, hidden, found, rejoicing. Selective obedience is not obedience. If your child chose to obey when it felt nice, but rebelled against you when it didn't, that would be no obedience at all. Obedience is to do what's been told to you no matter what, all of it, even if it is arduous, especially if it is arduous. So Abraham challenges us with comfortable Christianity, with selective obedience, and finally with competing priorities. Think about this. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus. Matthew ten thirty seven. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Do you know part of the problem in our lives as Christians is that we simply put other things in God's place. It's that simple. It's, it's not that we're too busy. It's not that. It's that we put other things or other people in God's spot. That's it. It's, just, it's really is that simple oftentimes. And we, we justify it and say, well, we're just busy or, you know, there's just so much on me right now. But the problem is that we just don't have God at the top. Abraham challenges that. Abram is to leave all to follow God, even those he loves most. So Abraham gives us a challenge. Comfortable Christianity, selective obedience, and competing priorities. Let the Holy Spirit put that on your heart as he sees fit. And let's not respond like this. Let's respond like this. Let God change us. But what lies beneath Abram's obedience is really the important thing. Why does Abram obey this is where Hebrews 11 becomes very important for our understanding because it pulls back the curtain to expose Abram's heart. What is the heart behind this obedience? And it's this simple. Faith and hope. That's why Abram obeys God. Faith and hope. 11.8 of Hebrews. By faith he obeyed. Faith is here the mechanism it is the means of obedience. It is the motivation by faith, by means of faith. He obeyed. 11.9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents. Living in a major city, from living in a major city to living in tents. By faith he went. Hebrews 11.10, this is where I want to focus you particularly for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you hear that? Let me read it again. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram set out from 
These places, he set out from Ur, this major city. You can still see the ruins of Ur. Go, go and Google image it when you get home and look at the, the ziggurat there, this massive worship structure, this pagan structure, still there. And look at the ruins of the city. He walks away from this major ancient city. He sets out. And the writer of Hebrews says that by faith, he was looking forward to the city that, city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, he was looking forward to heaven. He was looking forward to a future reality with God, not a specific place that would bring him all the satisfaction that he needed. He had hope. I want to say this to us. This is very important. Trusting God's promises and looking forward to future unseen realities is the only path to obedience. Here's the thing. If we have an obedience problem, it's because we have a faith problem. Obedience problems always result from not having a heart full of hope in God, knowing that God is faithful, that God has promised us life in Jesus, that he has given us his spirit, that he promises that we'll persevere, and that he promises us that one day he will come back for us, take us to glory, we will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will fill our hearts and we will praise God and serve him forever with other Christians. When that's not firm in the heart, when that's just a little thing you get reminded of sometimes, obedience will not be present. The only thing that can really inspire obedience is faith. Faith in God's promises and the future reality, the hope. So God's command and promise, Abram's obedience of faith. But as we come to the end of this passage, I want to briefly show you two more things that we see. We'll go through these rather quickly here at the end. So number four, appearance. Look at the first part of verse seven as we go through these quickly. The first part of verse seven. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this Land. What we have here is not a new set of promises. God doesn't come in verse two to, verses 1 to 3 and give, give one set of promises, and then he comes back in verse 7 and gives some more promises. That's not what we have here. Offspring and land have already been promised. But what we have here is confirmation and reassurance. God confirms that it will be this land, the land of Canaan, Palestine, that God will give him. And God reassures Abram with his presence. He appears to him. This is the first time in Scripture. Listen to this. The first time in Scripture that the Lord is said to have appeared to anyone. Now, we've, we've seen God walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. We've come across that. We've had this guy named Enoch who walked with God. We've seen that. We've seen God communicating with Noah. But this is the first time in the whole Bible that we get this language of God appearing to someone. And this is just the beginning. God will continue to appear to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This tells us something important about the Lord. Listen to this. He never calls us or commands us without his presence and reassurance. See, those arduous demands that Christ puts on us to not love anyone more than him, to pick up our cross and follow him, to go and do as he commands us to do. Here's the thing, people of God, he never calls us, he never commands us without assuring us that he's with us, inside of us, with the people of God. I mean, how many times have you been on a difficult path? Some of you in here have been, on, uh, have been missionaries. Some of you have been out serving the Lord in those very difficult ways. And how many times have you seen God show up and reassure you through his word, through your own conscience, through the people of God, through circumstances and experiences. He never sends us without being with us. He reminds us that he loves us and he gives us all that we need. But as we finish, let's look briefly at Abram's final response here, and that is worship. Worship in verses seven to nine. Look at those verses. We have Abram, Abram's worship. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. 
And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. We've seen this before. Once again, this pattern. Obedience. Worship. So Noah, Genesis 8, what does he do? He obeys God and then he gets off the ark. What happens? He builds an altar to the Lord. And we've also seen this activity of calling upon the name of the Lord. We read back, way back in Genesis chapter 4 with the descendants of Seth that Enosh, at the time of Enosh, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Once again, we're getting these little details from the past. God is saying to us, this line is still in effect. And in contrast to those at Babel who find one place to secure themselves and make their name great, What do we have here with Abram? Here he is traveling around making the Lord's name great. He's traveling around building these altars to the Lord. People are are looking on. It's not as though he's out in the middle of a, a field somewhere all by himself looking over his shoulder, seeing if there's anybody watching. He is making these these proclamations to the true God. Right there, building these altars to God. Claiming this land for worship of the one true God. And this altar at Shechem flies in the face of local paganism. You, you might have wondered when we read this about the Oak of Moray. What is this Oak of Moray? What's that talking about? Well, in the ancient world, there, were, there was a, a, a sense of kind of divinity surrounding these large oak trees. And so you would have this Belief that there you would go and you would hear oracles or you would hear special, special teaching. That the more means teacher or giver of oracles. So this is, this is an oak tree that is associated with pagan worship. And what we see here is Abram going there to build his altar to the Lord. And as we see this movement south through the land, there is one detail that I want to bring out before we pray. Shechem, between Bethel and Ai, and the Negev. You probably read this passage of Scripture and you just read right over these weird places. You think, okay, I don't know anything about these places. Let me get a Bible atlas out or look at that map in the back of your Bible. But these are very important places and let me explain why. These very same sites are visited by Jacob as he returns into Canaan after he served his uncle Laban for all those years to get Rachel, his wife, and he comes back into the land of Canaan and he stops at these places. And when Joshua, the, Joshua's about, the first readers of Genesis, Joshua is about to lead them into the promised land. And when Joshua leads them into the land, these are the sites that they will occupy. Why is this important? And here it is. Abram is symbolically taking possession of the land as he worships his way through it. He is moving through the land, erecting these altars to God, worshiping him. He is a nomad, just traveling through the land. But as he does this, he's establishing worship of the true God, taking possession of it symbolically for what will follow later. I want to end with a quote here from pastor and commentator Kent Hughes. He says this, How beautiful, how beautiful, the only architecture that remained from Abram's life were altars, not a tower, for the glory of his name, but altars to the God who promised to make him a great name. I wonder with us if faithful obedience will give rise to a life which we can look back and see altars, if you will, to the one true God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for teaching us about yourself today through your word. We thank you that you are the faithful God. You you command us You are our Lord and Master. You own us in every respect. And in this, God, you are a promise-making, promise-keeping God. You are a saving, providing, redeeming God. And we praise you that this is the one we call Father.
Father, we thank you for Abraham. We know he wasn't a perfect man. We know his faith was a gift. But how you hold him up in the Bible as our father, the father of faith, and how you hold his obedience up in the Bible, God, would we do the same? Would we obey you, not selectively, not idolatrously, putting others in your place and before you and alongside of you? Would we not seek a comfortable Christianity filled with quote-unquote blessings as we would see it? But would we pick up our cross and follow Christ, our suffering Savior, who will come back for us? In his name we pray. Amen.